And I think what is the real tragedy of this day and age is, although this violence that's seen in this war setting is so often a violence that is just commonly put into films, commonly put into literature. And in many ways, we're being desensitized to violence. In many ways, we're being desensitized to death and destruction that's all around us. And it may be because of that that so often when the Easter story is told, so often when the story of the cross is told, so much emphasis seems to be put on to the violence and the physical suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want to diminish for a moment what Jesus went through. But as we look in the Bible, as we read the Gospels, as we look in this Gospel of John, there's not an emphasis there upon the violence. Now maybe that was because just the mention of a crucifixion 2,000 years ago made somebody shudder. As a historian of that time said, Joseph said, he said it was the most wretched of deaths. Or Chero, another one said, a most cruel and terrible penalty. The Romans had taken an ancient way of execution and they had developed it to become probably the worst way they knew to kill somebody. It was horrendous. You wouldn't say the word crucifixion in polite company. It was like a, a swear word. It was something that wasn't talked about. And, and while we should shudder at the thought of a man dying on the cross, and we should because of the horror of what it is, this morning I want us to see the emphasis that John puts on the death of Christ. And so often when we look at the death of Christ on the cross, we, we come to the seven sayings of Christ. And we look at those seven sayings. Well, in the Gospel of John, we don't have all seven sayings. But four people say things in this narrative. And so our headings as we go through this morning are just going to be simply what somebody said. And the first one is what Pilate said. What Pilate said. Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. You see, there was an argument between Pilate and the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees about what the inscription would be over the cross. Last week, you remember that we saw Christ and his trial. And we, would, we saw that both the Jews and the Romans were powerless to kill Christ. It wasn't their choice. That's what they wanted. It wasn't in their power. That was what they wanted. It was because God allowed it. But while this was going on, Pilate saw Christ as being innocent. And he didn't want to have him killed. And he kept offering ways out for the Jews. But the Jews kept saying they wanted Jesus to be killed. And so in many ways, Pilate handing Jesus over to the Jews meant the Jews had got their own way. They'd won the argument. They'd, they'd got what they had wanted. And so they were arguing 
over this. And so as they were arguing over this, I want us to take a step back and think what was happening here. Here was the Roman leaders, and here were the Jewish leaders. And the backdrop is Christ on a cross. Jesus is there on the cross. Jesus is there naked, gasping for breath, in excruciating pain. And in front of him, as he's there in his agony, the Jews and the Pilate are arguing about an inscription. The Jews had got what they'd wanted, but Pilate was reminding them who was in control. He had said, he had said that this is the king of the Jews. And they didn't like it. And, and they told him what he should have written instead. This man said, I'm the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, I've written what I have written. Pilate was flexing his muscles and his power in front of the dying Christ. And the Jews were getting angsty and upset in front of the dying Christ. And what we see at the cross is we see humanity uh, is most depraved. They're dying behind them, and they're fighting over words and power play. You know what, friends, things are just no different nowadays. You see, the world is arguing about trivia. The world is fighting about big things like oil and big things about landmass. And the reality is that as the world fights through its greed and its pain, Christ has died to save people from their sins. And the world is fighting in front of a crucified Christ. And worse still, in the church, the church can be arguing about trivia things. This church is arguing about what sort of music should be played. This church is arguing about what sort of seats you should be sitting on. This church is arguing about what sort of clothes you should be wearing. What sort of Bible you should be reading. Then the church can be arguing about the trivia when Christ died to unite the church together. Humanity is depraved. Pilate's role is finished and we move on to see what the scriptures say. What the scriptures say. You see, when John writes his gospel, he is desperate to give us all the evidence that we need to be able to believe in the truth of his record and in the truth of what has been said here. And so, so often in John's gospel, you will, you will read that he, he says that this was written so the scriptures might be fulfilled. And so often John is pointing back to the Old Testament prophecies, prophecies that were 300, 500, 1,000, 1,300 years before. 
And he brings them back and he brings them into his narrative and he shows that the events happening then were predicted, were prophesied by God hundreds of years before. And as we see that, we have to be reminded that there is no book like the Bible. There is no book like God's Word because it is God's Word. And, and there's no other book like it in, the, in, in many different senses, but this one particular that I want to emphasize now is that all these prophecies from the Old Testament about the Lord Jesus Christ came true. And hundreds, in some cases a thousand plus years later, the prophecy comes true. So friends, if you don't take this book seriously, you're not taking God's word seriously. And John is, in this dark passage, reminding us that this is God's word. And what was prophesied in the past is coming true now. And in this little short passage here in chapter 19, from verse 16 through to the end, there are three particular examples of this now so much of what people call prophecy nowadays is just not explicit yes you, you will have divine favor in Jesus name and, and there's a lot of amens and a lot of hallelujahs but what does that mean you see when these prophecies were made in the Old Testament they were really specific specific and in verse 18 of this chapter 19, it said, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And that's taken from Psalm 22. Over a thousand years earlier, it is predicted that there would be this event that happened. And there on the cross, Christ is naked. And he's naked because the soldiers have taken his clothes from him. That was common practice. That was part of the punishment. That was the part of it. But yet we see the depths of human depravity because these soldiers who have nailed Christ to the cross get out their dice and they're gambling for who gets what. Who's going to get the sandals? Who's going to get the belt? And then they have an item of clothing that's of great value. His, his, his cloak, it's a special cloak. It's the same sort of cloak that the high priest would have worn. It was a cloak that was not with any hems or seams in it, or any seams in it. And although this is part of their payment, isn't it grim? Isn't it sickening to think that there behind them, in agony and shame, is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus, God's own Son, dying. And there they are fighting over, well, not fighting, but gambling over who gets worth, gets what. At the cross, we see humanity that is most depraved. And sadly, that's a picture of how things are now. Around the world, we see people fighting over material things and putting material things in far more importance than Jesus. 
But you know what? There's been people who have come to this island, and they've come to this island, and they've come to this building, and as they've come to this building, and they've come to this island, they've said, I am a Christian. And in a space of time, through circumstance, and from where their heart is, they end up getting involved in drugs, in Yahoo, in prostitution, and we see how depraved humanity is. And we all self-righteously think, but that's not us. And we're seeing our pride and our self-righteousness, which is, in God's eyes, just as depraved. And when we put ourselves or our education or our work before Jesus, in many ways we're just no better than the soldiers gambling for Christ's clothes. Verse 28, to fulfill the scriptures, Christ shouts, I thirst. And then 29, a jar of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. That prophecy can be seen in Psalm 69 in verse 22. We're going to come back to more detail about what Jesus said with, I thirst. But Jesus was in real physical need. And in his physical need of that dry, parched mouth, There, dying on the cross, in his thirst, he's given sour wine. Now, now some people feel that this sour wine was was an act of compassion. On balance, and as I'd like to put before you this morning, I don't think this was an act of compassion. I think this is part of the torture. You see, in the parallel passage in Luke chapter 23 and verse 36, it kind of confirms this. The soldiers were mocking him, and they were coming and offering him sour wine. Now now think of it like this. You are extremely thirsty. You've not drunk for hours. You shed blood. Your body is, is falling to pieces. Your systems are closing down. You are desperate for a drink of water, and what's put on your lips is something that is sour and bitter. Not like the Cypriot lemon that the kids could drink. But this was something that wouldn't have been nice. Think of it like this. We're thankfully getting past our COVID days, aren't we? But there was a time when we were washing our hands with the alcohol stuff all the time, weren't we? Do you remember those days? Yeah? What happened if you got a cut on your hand and you put that alcohol stuff in there? What did it do? I almost became an African and started dancing, yeah? There was pain there. Now think of this. Christ has been beaten. His face is marred. He's not recognized as who he was. And they put this alcohol mix of bitterness in his mouth. And they were laughing at Christ. 
And what Jesus needed and wanted was the comfort of water. And what he was given by wicked, sadistic human hearts was something worse. And friends, at the cross, we see humanity at its most depraved. In verse 36, the last of the scriptures here in this section, it said that these scriptures might be fulfilled in verse 66, not one of his bones will be broken. That's taken from Psalm 34. And yet again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Zechariah 12 and 10. And these scriptures were put into this passage around the time after Christ had died, but they didn't know that. And the soldiers were going to break the legs of those that were being crucified. There was Christ in the middle and on the left and the right, the two that deserved their punishment because they had transgressed. And so we ask ourselves the question, why were they going to break the legs of Jesus? Friends, this is a tragedy. It, it was the Jewish leaders. It was the religious people that wanted Jesus' legs to be broken. And it was because the next day was to be the Sabbath. And not just any old Sabbath, it was, a, it was a high day, it was a special Sabbath. It was the Sabbath in the middle of the Passover. And the Jews didn't want to pollute this special Sabbath with their dirty work of the dying Christ on a cross. And these religious minds were wanting to have Christ killed and done with so that they could get on with their religious experience. Nothing must get in the way of their special Sabbath. And here is the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus Christ. And all they want to do is get rid of him. Because he's an inconvenience to their comfort, to their power, and to what they want. And you can almost think, yes, of course, the Roman soldiers would have been depraved at that time. That's what Roman soldiers were. But here we have the religious. Here we have the people who opened the Torah, the Old Testament, and read through it. Here we have people who possibly could recite chapters and chapters of God's law. And they want Christ dead off the cross so that their Passover won't be polluted. At the cross, we see humanity that is most depraved. And sadly, right now, we see the same thing because people have not changed. People don't want Christ. They want to push him out of their lives. They want to push God out of their 
ears. They want to push God out of their society because if he's there, he stops their enjoyment of life because they want to be king of kings and lord of lords. And sadly, it can happen in the church. Christ is pushed out because the church has its own ideas of how it should be. And Christ and Christ crucified stop their enjoyment and their ideas of what is right. And then thirdly, we come to see what Jesus said. As, as I said before, there are seven sayings of Christ on the cross, and we have three of them here in John, and it's just those ones we're going to be focusing on because we're in the Gospel of John and going through it. And there is a stark contrast here, friends. Because as we've seen the depth of human depravity around the cross, we, we, we see in our mind's eye, and I want you to see in your mind's eye, Christ suffering on the cross. And he is suffering. The pain is real. He is a human. Just as you know pain, Christ knows pain. And the pain that you would have felt had you been crucified is the pain that Christ was feeling. It was real. Every breath he took would have given him excruciating pain. He'd have had to move and wriggled up and down to, to allow himself to breathe. His lacerated back rubbing up and down the cross. His nailed hands tearing into the nerves. And in this excruciating pain, Christ looks down from the cross and he sees his mother. And in his pain, and in his agony, he says, woman, behold your son. And then to the disciple, he says, behold your mother. And despite his intense suffering, Jesus is thinking of those he loves. And not only is he thinking of those he loves, he's making provision for his mum. His mum who had been through so much to bring him into the world in that miraculous way. His mum who was probably at this stage widowed, but we don't know, but she certainly was suffering the trauma of what no mother should suffer. We're hearing reports coming out of the Ukraine of loved ones having seen their loved ones killed in front of them. And it hurts us, doesn't it, to read that. Here is the mother of Christ watching her son dying, being killed. And Jesus is showing this great compassion. I simply want to ask you the question, do you know that compassion for yourself? Is Jesus your 
Saviour. When he was dying on that cross, when he was looking out in compassion for his mother, was he there in compassion for you? Was he there taking your sins? You see, this time the irreligious soldiers and and the religious Jews and the political leaders were trying to gain something. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords was doing something totally different. Jesus is emptying himself. And in verse 28, the, the second thing we see him say from this passage is, I thirst. I thirst. Thirst is such a, a basic human need, but it's an essential for life. Uh, and what we see here is, is that this cry underlines Paul's commentary on what's happening here. In Philippians 2 and chapter 7 and verse 9, he's talking about Christ and it says, but he made himself nothing. The Son of God left glory, left the sinless heavens and the presence of God in that special sense. And he took on the form of a servant. And he's born in the likeness of men. And he's found in human form. And he's humbled himself to becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And his thirst is a picture in some ways of this emptying of him of everything. And John is reminding the the reader that Jesus was human. He was a real man. He was in real physical discomfort. But I think we need to go deeper and we should go deeper because there's more going on here. Jesus is just saying more than he thirsts. There's a spiritual element. And as we've gone through the Gospel of John, we've seen some wonderful things that Jesus has said in, in regard to drinking. And I want your minds to flash back to the the woman of Samaria who comes out to the well and meets with Jesus. And Jesus tells her everything that she's been through. And Jesus said to her in verse 13 of John chapter 4, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, pointing to the well that Abraham had built. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. Never thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see, there's a a picture here of this water that gives eternal life and Christ is giving eternal life and Christ is saying, I thirst. And it's because of all this wonderful life that was within him is being taken away. It's been taken away so that he can give eternal life to others. In the Feast of the Booths, Jesus is in the temple and he's speaking in the temple. And in chapter 7 of John, on the last day of the feast, in verse 37, it's a great day. Jesus stood up and cried out in the temple, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. Last week, Michael was speaking to the children, wasn't he? 
And he's explained that Jesus used water as, as a metaphor, to, as an illustration to explain spiritual need. Sinners are spiritually empty due to sin. And they're thirsty. And, and they're thirsty and the only way to be satisfied is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ has said, come to me. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And here is this Savior who can give rivers of living water. And he is saying, I thirst. He's saying, I am emptying. He's pouring everything of his whole being out. The only way to the Father is through the emptied, thirsty Christ. And the only way our thirst and our emptiness can be satisfied is through the sinless one Christ who'd emptied himself of everything. And while you and I might not think of ourselves as bad as the soldiers or as bad as the Jewish believers. We need the cross because we are depraved humanity. And our personal sin is our personal emptiness and it can only be satisfied by a personal saviour who emptied himself. In the sequence of Christ's seven sayings on the cross, the I thirst comes after, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Christ's forsakenness and Christ's thirst all point to the finished work of Christ on the cross and he comes to that and he cries out, it is finished. It is finished. And at the cross we see humanity is most depraved. Because at the cross we could say, they took Christ's life. We could say it was the Romans who nailed him to the cross. We could say it was Judas who betrayed him. We could say it was the Jewish leaders who had the mock court. And we see the depravity of life. And we could say, well, it's the depravity of life that took Christ's life. And then we read, and he bowed his head and gave up his Spirit. A crucifixion could take three days. Christ wasn't there for three days. He, he was there for an unusually short amount of time. So much so that they thought they'd have to break his legs to kill him because they thought he still would be alive. But Christ wasn't alive. Christ, in his finished work, gave up his spirit. He gave up his life. Christ's life was not taken from him. You see, at the cross, we see Christ giving up his life for the depraved. 
He gave it up. His whole life, his whole existence is sinless. He did not deserve to die. The wages of sin is death. We all deserve death. We all deserve an eternal punishment from God. But Christ didn't. Christ did not deserve a jot of that because Christ was without sin. And so the only way that Christ could die was by giving up his life and he gave up his life to pay for the price of our sins. He gave his life to take the punishment of the guilty. Like the Passover lamb, the perfect, sinless Christ stood in the place of you believers here this morning. He stood in the place of all who truly repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, their Savior. And that is why he could cry, it is finished The mission is accomplished. The job is done. If you could like it, put it like... No, I'm not going to put it like that, sorry. It is finished. So you can begin. You see, we can't leave there. God willing, next week we're going to be at the resurrection and the wonder of that. But there is something else that happens here in this passage. And it underlines that Christ's finished work allows us to go on and begin. You see, Christ's finished work means that our sin is dealt with. We're made right with God and we're given a new beginning. And there's two new people that come on the scene. There's Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. You may remember their stories. You may remember how this happened. Joseph was a secret believer, wasn't he? As the passage tells us. And Nicodemus went to see Jesus at at night time. They were fearful. They, They were afraid. They weren't really sure. But when Jesus quenches your thirst, everything changes. Because fourthly here, Joseph said. What did Joseph say? Christ has died. He's on the cross. They've put the spear in his side and and proven his death with the blood and the water coming out. He is finished. And, and, And Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate. And he asks that he might take the body of Jesus. This is someone who is a secret believer. This is someone who wasn't open. And there he is, walking in and asking for the body of Jesus. And I just want us to think of the cost of this action. There was a a social cost. And first of all, it's this. It was not the, the social norm to give someone who had been crucified a dignified burial. The Romans, if it was left to them, the body had been left on the cross and the crows and the rooks would have eaten him. And if it was left to the, the Jews, somebody would have taken those bodies and just thrown them in the dump. But 
Joseph had seen something special, hadn't he? Joseph had realized and drunk deep what was going on here. And he he couldn't cope with the idea of Christ's body being, being just thrown away like that. And so he goes against all the social norm and wants to give the body of Christ a dignified burial. But by doing that, they risk their own security because immediately they're identifying themselves with Christ, Jesus. And the authorities had just put him to death and then the Jews were just desperate for him to die. And and by these men coming forward and, and doing this, they were saying, we are following Christ. They're saying, we are his men. They were saying, we are his disciples. And they were putting themselves right at risk. And then also, more alongside this, the, the, the whole religious aspect was here. You see, this was about to be the Passover Sunday, the Passover Sabbath, sorry, the big special one in the calendar. And these guys were religious. And by touching a body, they would become defiled and dirty and they wouldn't be able to celebrate the Passover. But they'd realize that something bigger had happened than the Passover. They had realized that the Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, had died to take the sins away from his people. Whether they realized it like that at that moment in time, I don't know. But they had something had happened that they were willing to compromise this old religion and touch the defiled body and become defiled themselves. And they did it because Christ had changed everything in their lives by dying on the cross. And as this passage opens up, we we, we realize that he came with 75 pounds of spices. That's a lot. It had been expensive. And there's a financial element here. And the grave clothes and a new tomb. A new tomb wasn't cheap. We dig holes in the ground. They're they're a bit cheaper. But a, a hole in the wall, it had to be chiseled out it, there was an expense there, it had to be part of land there was an expense there and this was given to, for Christ to be put in there was a financial cost here and, and friends what we see here is when Christ said it is finished it was the beginning of Joseph and Nicodemus's walk The cross changed everything. Those two would have been just like the Jews. They were the Jews. That's the stable they came from. And they were changed. And they were born again. And now they were sacrificial, open followers of Jesus Christ. No longer secret believers. And so we've heard and seen what Pilate said. And we've heard and seen what the scriptures said. And we've heard and seen what Jesus said. And we've heard and seen what Joseph said. And in closing, I want to ask you, what do you say? What 
do you say? Christ cried out, it is finished, so that you can begin. Have you begun? Have you begun a true relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you born again like Nicodemus was told in the past that he needed to and he didn't understand it and now he does. He is born again. He has changed. He was someone who was with the Jews and now he's openly there for Christ. Are you born again? Has Christ taken your own personal depravity and nailed it to the cross? Because if he hasn't, you are without hope. The only real hope that we can have in this world and in this life is if Christ has taken our own personal depravity. Friends, I've used this word depravity on purpose this morning. Because I think sometimes we get used to the word sin. Friends, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We're all depraved in his sight. And if you don't like that, you've got a problem. And if you don't like it, we can come to Christ and ask him to take it and nail it to the cross. Friends, don't leave here with your sins and your depravity. Leave here with your sins and your depravity nailed to that cross. And if you are saying, I've done that, hallelujah, amen, praise God. But for those of you that are professing that you are Christ's, I want to ask you the question, has the cross changed your life it changed Nicodemus's life it changed Joseph's life didn't it they were secret now they were in the open and, and if you've been living a, a life of sort of secret comfort as a Christian I think now is a time to challenge that look what Christ has done for you did Christ die on the cross so that you could live a secret life as a Christian. With a little insurance policy in your top pocket to say, I'm okay, I'm going to get to heaven. But not paying the price week by week or be willing to bear the cross or walk in Christ's ways. And if you are saying you are Christ, and I trust you are, I do do want you to examine yourselves and say, has the cross, has my salvation changed my life? And if it hasn't, go back and ask God to work in power and might. And if it has, praise God and ask him, how much more can I give? Because Christ gave everything. Amen. I would like you to just take a moment to, to think on and ask the Holy Spirit to, to show you what you should be taking away from this this morning.